Welcome to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where Jim and Patrick discuss a drive-in double feature randomly selected from a list of over 1,600 movies. Now, what is a drive-in film? Well, we're defining it as something that might be just below the mainstream, something from a genre that doesn't get the respect it deserves. These could be cult movies, midnight movies, giallos, slasher movies, exploitation flicks, erotic thrillers, etc. Or, these might just be movies that evoke the youthful spirit of drive-in cinema of the 1950s and 1960s. I'm your host, Patrick, and I'm joined by... Jim. Alright, uh, Jim, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you too, Patrick. Hashtag too spooky. We do select these films at random, but in my opinion, we happen to have gotten two of the greatest horror films ever made, two of my personal favorites as well, so it works out. Yeah, one uh, definitely a personal favorite of mine, and the other had not seen it until you recommended it, and uh, I was thoroughly impressed. All right, well, I already know which one you're talking about, because you and I have seen Frankenstein together. It was about, might as well have been two years ago to the day. I actually actually Right around Halloween. uh, Yeah, I actually looked it up. It was three years ago. So you and I have obviously fond memories of Frankenstein, the first film we'll be doing. Frankenstein from 1931, part of the Universal Monsters series cycle. I honestly don't think Cinematic Universe is too unfair a term to use there because there were crossovers and I mean, stuff it did in the it 40s way before that, Marvel was, uh, if you will the first cinematic universe game. anyways our first film is frankenstein from 1931 from director james whale a master of an early master of horror cinema of course and our second film is from 1999 it's audition from a modern master of horror cinema or just the bizarre i guess you could probably say with takashi Miike, the japanese director yeah i definitely have to go back and uh look up some more things he's done because i really want to watch some more of his work we have 1600 movies there's a decent amount of takashi Miike selections i mean not to the point where i can say like oh expect him next week or something you know over half our movies are takashi Miike's, but there's a lot in here some of which I've seen and a lot of which I haven't because I've seen a good amount of his movies like 10 11 12 but he's made over 100 and he's only been directing for about 25 years or something like that so it's crazy crazy career okay the movie I uh, or I guess the movie I'm talking about the the movie we both watched together three years ago uh, is Frankenstein from 1931 as you said directed by James Whale Frankenstein opens with a man uh, who's played by Edward Van Sloan, uh, who plays Dr. Waldman. He introduces the story and warns the viewer that it might shock and horrify you, uh, which is, you know, clearly a note to the theater audience. And I think at one point he even says... It's also, it's also, it's also a bit funny in, in, in the context of today, especially with the second film that we saw. <laughs> if this shocks and horrifies you, I don't want to know what Audition does to you. But this movie properly starts with Henry Frankenstein, played by Colin Clive, and Fritz by Dwight Fry, waiting out a burial before they dig up a corpse. I would just love to say I love how this movie, I mean, you have kind of that opening scene, which it almost seems like that would just have been phased out with DVD releases and stuff. I kind of like that they still have it there because it's like, you know, a flashback to a simpler time kind of thing. But I love the way the story truly starts in this cemetery. There's something I love about the set 
it is very clearly a set, you know. Yeah. The background, I'm sure it would look worse in color, but they probably could have done a better job with the background to make it kind of look less like a background. But I love the set, the way the tombstones and crosses, and there's like a Grim Reaper like headstone thing. And they're all like, none of them are standing up straight. They're all angled. It's, it's just a really neat look to it. And I, I really like that. Even though it's a set, I still really appreciate it. It's kind of a throwback to the German expressionist films like Nosferatu or especially the cabinet of Dr. Caligari from the silent days. Exactly. I was actually going to bring that up, which we then see uh, later on in the movie, which I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, briefly, I guess, when we get to the walls of Frankenstein's castle. Henry Frankenstein and Fritz are, are waiting out a burial before they dig up a corpse. After they dig that one up, they're leaving and they come along another corpse that's hanging. Frankenstein sends Fritz up there uh, to cut the body down and he laments that the neck is broken. So they need a fresher brain. They need a new brain. Uh, it cuts to Dr. Waldman finishing up a lecture on phrenology at the medical college. It's a discussion of the normal brain versus the abnormal brain. Dr. Waldman makes the point that the abnormal brain is a result of a life of brutality, violence, and murder. It should, of course, be stated that this is not a very faithful adaptation of the Mary Shelley novel. I have read the novel. I love it. I don't remember it that much because it's been a long time since I've read it. But this Dr. Waldman lecture, it's very phrenology and stuff, which was a big thing in, in Victorian times. I mean, that's what the novel, um, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, is all about, that you can tell a criminal by the makeup of his skull. I don't know how widely accepted that was in 1939 or if this if this was kind of a knowing like a look back at when people believe this or if people kind of did believe this in the 30s because the 30s I mean eugenics was exactly, rather yeah. popular in the 1930s. I mean you don't have to look to Nazi Germany to to realize that it was happening in America, Canada, Britain. So after uh, Dr. Waldman finishes his, his lecture on the on the two brains, Fritz sneaks into the auditorium by sliding open the window with his cane, uh, which uh, Fritz is a hunchback, by the way. Yep, classic Igor, but he's not Igor, you know. And he limps on over to the two brains sitting on the desk, and one says normal, the other one says abnormal. He picks up the normal brain, uh, hears a loud bang, and drops it. So he turns around and grabs the abnormal brain and slinks away into the night. It then cuts to a woman named Elizabeth, who's played by Mae Clark, who's Frankenstein's fiance, and she's reading a letter that she's received from him uh, to their mutual friend Victor. In the letter, he says that he's been busy with experiments that he's and, and that he's on the verge of a major discovery that makes him question his own sanity. So Victor decides to go to Dr. Waldman to find out more about what uh, Henry Frankenstein is doing, and Elizabeth joins. There seems to be a lot of chemistry between these two characters. I don't think it's intended to come off this way, but there's almost like a, I don't, it's not extramarital because she's not yet married, but there is kind of <laughs> something going on Absolutely. there, I feel like. I feel like Victor is definitely yeah. trying He's to sneak in her there, around. You know? He's accompanying her places. I mean, I've seen this movie like probably close to a dozen times and it took me eight or nine times to really pick up on that. Yeah, and I wonder if that's just because what we know about Henry Frankenstein or if it's just that they just simply make a better looking couple. I don't know. Well, anyways, as we're talking to Waldman, he admits that Frankenstein is brilliant, but he's also worried about him. He mentions that he's been attempting to create life, and uh, I think uh, Victor says, Oh, well, what's the matter with a few rabbits and cats or rats or something? And Waldman leans in and says, It's not animals. He's, he's working with humans. And I think he says something along the lines of, There you have it, his mad dream. So Elizabeth convinces Waldman to join them as they go to try to talk to Henry Frankenstein and talk him out of his insane ambitions. It then cuts to Frankenstein and Fritz, where they're running one final test of their lab equipment before they can revive the body that 
Frankenstein is created. I also want to point out here, because to be honest, I don't think I mentioned it, or I don't think I noticed it the first time I watched this, uh, which was years ago. The second time was with you. I don't think I noticed this, but he really talks about the life-giving qualities of lightning, which for some reason I just never really thought about. I always just thought lightning, oh, electricity, it's it's going to pump something into him. But he talks about the heavenly life-giving qualities of lightning, which I really like, and makes it kind of mystical that may or may not be tied to the novel Uh, i know there aren't that many similarities but i know the novel's all about galvanism which is basically using electricity to so i mean in that case it doesn't have to be lightning but uh, you know the original frankenstein novel takes place it was written 1818 or so i think it takes place maybe 50 years before that i don't know what sources of electricity we had other than lightning right so and i should say that this movie it's kind of hard to set a time period on this movie like the movie came out in 19 1931, but there's a lot of it that does this take place 100 years ago, 200 years ago? Does it take place at the time of the novel, or like Victorian times? We don't really know. There is one scene later where or it's on his wedding day, but Frankenstein is wearing these pants. I don't know what they're called, but they're like the really wide hips that you'll like see like golfers wear from like the 1920s. It's like like that kind of fashion. That's a that's 20th century fashion there. But I mean, I don't believe we see an automobile anywhere, you know. No, and I mean, I, I will briefly just say, actually, two things. One, I just remember, I don't know if this is true, but I saw on Wikipedia that this Frankenstein movie is banned in China for its non-scientific portrayal of, of science or something like that i don't know but i can that's, that's really weird. interesting because because it also came under fire we'll get to the scene in just a few minutes but it also came under fire from some american censors not for its unscientific depiction of science but for the way it sort of i i don't think attacked is the right word but for the way it kind of addresses religion in a way and yes, i will yeah. revisit that point again in a few minutes but Yes, yeah, so anyways, as they're running this test, uh, Elizabeth, Dr. Waldman, and Victor show up at the lab, and uh, Fritz answers the door and tries to turn them away. Oh, I-, I should also point out, because, you know, it's they're working with electricity, it's during this big downpour and thunderstorm, and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But anyways, Fritz tries to turn them away, <laughs> but they insist, and eventually Frankenstein decides to let all three of them in because of the storm, and he later decides that he'd rather have witnesses to his brilliance. He gives a, a great speech. I mean, it's largely at the audience because up, because this movie kind of starts in medias res and it has a pretty fast pace throughout. So we're kind of catching up all throughout this first, you know, act. But he's, he's also addressing it specifically to Dr. Waldman, his scientific, you know, superior slash peer. There's kind of, they're kind of both, but he's got this awesome, awesome scene. And this is really where Colin Clive, to me, stands out. I mean... This is the Boris Karloff movie. Of mm-hmm. course, this is, you know, we all know Boris Karloff played the monster, but Colin Clive really is terrific in this film. He has two or three speeches that are just fantastically performed. And in classic mad scientist where, you know, he seems dangerous, but he's also so confident and assured in his own work. And we see with good reason, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And Clive absolutely nails this. I mean, to be honest, I don't know much about acting or, you know, whatnot. I mean, again, I I think I can... Exactly, or anything, you know. I think I can speak for the both of us when we... Or when I say we know what we like or what we think is is good i mean i mean i've also appeared in two high school plays oh so, my gosh know, I'm, wow. a, I'm an expert yeah. oh my gosh wow. i, ha- I had two lines in one of them i think i had two lines in one of them <laughs> oh my God. i hope that's recorded somewhere the other one was a bit tougher it was bottom in a midsummer night's dream though so <laughs> oh no you know. 
It's a major role. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Colin Clive is just amazing in this. Uh, you just can't take your eyes off of him uh, or your ears for that matter. He's just got this this delivery that's just so spot on and perfect of this mad, crazy scientist, but also somebody who. I don't know, he's just so intelligent and comes across as almost arrogant because they're just so smart. My favorite depiction of the Dr. Frankenstein character will always be Peter Cushing in the Hammer movies because that's, but that's also just a different character. I think this character is a lot more believable. That Frankenstein, he's just kind of a psychopath, (laughs) which is great. It's great for those movies, but that would have been strange here. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, so when everybody gets up uh, into the lab, Frankenstein and Fritz decide to raise the body up for everybody to see and it's struck by lightning and he lowers it back down the body's hand then starts moving and this is our it's alive moment famous it's alive I love this scene. Again, this is another moment where Colin Clive is great. I mean, you can hear in that it's alive and then in the subsequent in the name of God. Now I know what it feels like to be God. This isn't he's not just some crazy person. He's blown away by his own genius in yeah. in a way. And it's so great. And that's the in the name of God line is the one that kind of was under attack that was censored. I don't know when that might have been maybe when this was re-released post Hayes Code. We, we will likely talk a lot more about the Hayes Code when we talk about, or if we talk about a movie like Freaks, because then it really comes into play. But basically, the Hayes Code it comes out in like the mid-30s, 34, 35, 36, something like that. And it was kind of like a moral or a way to make American films, American Hollywood films, more moral. Like there were things like, we won't release this movie if the bad guy wins, things like that, mm-hmm. where... And I think that's, and I know this movie was released in about, or re-released at some point later in the 30s, maybe in 39, and maybe that's when that line kind of got cut, but they just play lightning over that, and it's... I I mean the it's alive is of course the famous line. I don't I don't think it stops there. I think that entire little moment is also great. That little I I don't know if I'd call it a speech, but yeah, I mean that that, that moment's also great when I think it is Doctor Waldman that runs over and grabs him. I think I think it's him and Victor. It's both yeah. of them. Yeah, because then you also realize too that the Doctor, even though he realizes, even though he acknowledges that Frankenstein is crazy, he also acknowledges that he's absolutely brilliant and that he has mm-hmm. done something. It's kind of a nice sort of semi-redemption for Frankenstein and everybody who thought that he was just crazy, but now it just turns out he is crazy and a genius. This scene uh, ends abruptly, actually quite abruptly. It just cuts to black and then uh, comes back and it shows Elizabeth and Victor discussing Henry Frankenstein with Henry's father, Baron Frankenstein, uh, who dismisses Mm -hmm. the experiments and thinks his son must be having an affair. Stepping back to the character of the father for a second, he's just like, we were talking just briefly, like, just a few seconds ago, how fast the movie felt like it was moving. And Frankenstein was so neat to see on screen. And even Dr. Waldman was a great character. And all these characters are just kind of, not necessarily running around, but they're almost flowing quickly through through scenes and, and things are happening. As soon as it gets to the father, he's just such a terrible character and it stops. Like everything just stops dead in its tracks. And whenever he's on screen, it looks like he's, it sounds like he's having a senior's moment every time he's on screen. He's like, who are you? Where are you? Where am I going? What is this? I mean, this movie is about 70 minutes long, so it's really, really brief. I I don't even necessarily want to say his scenes drag because they're not long. They do interrupt the movie fairly harshly, but those are the one scenes, those are like the only scenes that I'm like, you know, you can trim this or you can get rid of this. And then maybe you're looking at a 63-minute movie, but... Yeah, yeah. And then even with the wedding stuff, I... I'm not entirely sure why they brought it in. I mean, I 
I, I guess if they're going to use to pad it. Well, I don't know about the the drama surrounding the wedding, but for the wedding, the wedding needs to be there because that's what gets every all of the villagers in one place, i.e. easy path to a runaway mob. Yeah, I mean, it could have even been just like a festival or something. Though. You know, it didn't have to be. I mean, that's true. That's true. This this kind of. I mean, it kind of looks just like a festival exactly, when you yeah. see it in the streets and yeah. stuff. It doesn't necessarily look like a wedding. But anyways, yeah, you're right. But uh, yeah, so after uh, Victor and Elizabeth are talking to Henry's father and he just kind of dismisses all of what Henry's doing as having an affair, the burgomaster comes in. He, sh- he shows up and he tries to figure out when the wedding will be between Elizabeth and Henry. And uh, the Baron kind of, again, dismisses it. He doesn't think there's going to be a wedding at all. And the Burgomaster gets a little flustered and leaves. I guess it cuts to immediately after that. It cuts to Henry talking with Dr. Waldman, wh- where Henry's just kind of like leant back in a chair smoking, uh, telling Dr. Waldman to, you know, relax, stop pacing kind of thing. Dr. Waldman immediately thinks the monster that Henry has created is dangerous. And Frankenstein insists that he isn't crazy. Yeah, and this is where it I think it's a little strange for Waldman, you know, obviously he's got a scientific mind to immediately be like I, I suppose it makes sense to be cautious, but he's more than cautious. He's like, we need to stop this right now. And again, it, going back to our discussion on Killer Workout, we have a very unclear passage of time here. So we don't know if maybe he's seen something that the monster's done that, you know, he doesn't like, that he thinks is bad. But I think ultimately when we actually meet the monster, I think it's more or less implied that that's not the case. So I, it's a little bit weird to have Waldman so immediately be like on edge but it, I think it's a good scene. I love the interaction between these two. Henry's so relaxed, and Waldman is like, you know, we gotta kill this thing. This thing's gonna kill you. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I like may, and maybe he's just kind of a little frantic because it is this new life created, you know, by the student he thought was crazy. But I, again, I I do really like the scene, and I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Waldman's motivations for it, but I, I really do like the scene. But anyways, the monster played by the great Boris Karloff. Uh, enters the room yep. backwards. He walks backward in through this door that slowly opens. And then we get a series of jump cuts to reveal his face, which is this. I, I don't know. It, it's, it almost looks like his eyes are clouded over, but they're not. Um, but it's just this kind of creepy, horrifying face, I guess, is is the best way to describe it. We're going to have to talk about the makeup itself. As classic as this scene is, it's a really weird introduction why he kind of walks <laughs> yeah, backwards no, yeah. into the room and everything. And I really think it's just to delay that reveal for as long as mm-hmm. possible to kind of build up anticipation. Oh, we know he's coming. We know we're going to see him. When we do see the face, it's magnificent. I mean, I don't know how this would have looked in color in black and white. It looks beautiful obviously uh the makeup is done by jack pierce who was kind of responsible for all the classic universal monsters you know he did Mm -hmm. the wolfman the mummy which again boris karloff and i think there's also just something about boris karloff's face that lends it so well to this kind of makeup he has a naturally kind of tall or long face he's got kind of a big forehead and there's just like a lot of room to work with to make him look like this monster i mean this this is one of the most iconic looks of, for of a character in you know in film history and it just it still looks so great just briefly i was watching the um like the behind the scenes i guess for the for frankenstein on this special dvd set i was watching from they All were right, saying yeah. that uh shucks i remember who the producer was but they turned down probably carl freund Maybe, I'm Maybe. not sure. Or it, it, was, it was like Lamel or Lem... Or Le- oh, yeah, Carl Lem... Lamely, yeah, Lemley like Jr. Yeah. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it, but yeah, I've seen but that But they name. turned down... He, he turned down... 
Lugosi. You're thinking of Lugosi, right? Yeah. Uh, in favor of Karloff because Karloff had a bit of a, a look to him. He wasn't really sure what it was, but after looking at Karloff, they decided they wanted to give the monster a big forehead and kind of sunken, sallow cheeks to make it look like it had been this body that was decaying in the ground which I thought was really neat. Mm-hmm. And they pulled off perfectly. And I mean, they also gave him this oversized torso, apparently. And they just padded his clothing out, essentially. So he- And he's got to be wearing lifts, too, because I, I looked this up. I was kind of shocked. Boris Karloff is is listed as 5'11". <laughs> oh, see, I mean, that's just some random website that could be incorrect. Now, see, I saw 5'9". But- because I was going to say, oh, okay. either way, he's about as tall as I am. I'm 5'10". So I was amazed. So you're right. Yeah, me too. Me too so... You know, people back then were, on average, a little bit shorter than they are now, but he towers over his other actors, Colin Clive included. Yeah. no. It, and, I mean, Fritz is short, plus he's a hunchback, so obviously <laughs> right, yeah, it's like the monster was huge compared to him. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, anyways, after Karloff enters, uh, or sorry, the monster enters, um, the monster initially responds to Henry's commands when he says, come, sit. Again, this is when I said earlier... This is why I think that that jump in time was very brief, because this scene kind of comes off as those two, their first interaction. Maybe the monster was held in a cell for a few days or something, but this really does appear to be Frankenstein's first time kind of training him, or, you know, much like you would with, like, a pet. It's such a great performance from Karloff, the way, I mean, the way he moves, it, it does look like someone who is learning how to walk. I think you th- you kind of think of, like, Frankenstein's monster, and it's like, oh, it probably doesn't take much of an actor to pull that off, right? You just kind of lumber and, and move around. But if you've seen the other movies in the Frankenstein series from Universal, it's Karloff for the first three. After that, it's, I don't remember the order, but it's Glenn Strange, it's Lon Chaney Jr., and it's your boy Bela Lugosi he got his chance none of them match like you don't fully appreciate how great Karloff is in that role until you see someone who isn't as good as him I think that's absolutely it and I also want to point out his his movements it almost it's almost like Karloff sat down and thought how would somebody who's been reanimated or how would somebody who's made of different body parts move and he almost moves with like a rigor mortis like when he sits down in the chair when he sits down in the chair he just kind of thumps into it and his hands stay almost completely flat out (laughs) you know from Mm -hmm. from his wrists which was i thought was great yeah there's a bit of an interaction between the monster and frankenstein and then fritz enters the scene and accidentally scares the monster with his torch it kind of freaks frankenstein's monster out uh, the monster is it that he's just kind of worked up and then and then frankenstein and is it frankenstein valden and fritz all kind of tackle him to the ground yeah i think so and this is or another valdman, thing where yeah. i i mentioned earlier that valdman it's not really that clear why valdman kind of hates the monster right away it's even more extreme with fritz because fritz right away enjoys torturing the poor guy i mean here i think oh yeah i think yeah. he it's it's on accident i don't think he realized that realizes the torch is going to frighten him but once he knows like he's not holding back <laughs> like he <laughs> no, exactly yeah well because then in the next scene after they kind of drag him away they chain him up in this big room Room, which again you know talking about german expressionism all the walls in this castle are just slanted yeah. like varying degrees and it, it just lends this kind of unsettling feeling to it but they chain uh, the monster in this huge room where fritz is essentially torturing mm-hmm. him with a torch Th- then he starts whipping him and or sorry i got that backwards he starts he's whipping the monster and uh henry tells him to stop 
and he leaves. And he's got this line, I can't remember if it's this scene or, or that last one, but where he's just like, oh, leave him alone. And you can just hear the, just the That's frustration, it, yeah. the tiredness in Colin Clive's performance, where I think there's some empathy for the monster. He's the only one of the three characters here who really has that, but I think it's also just like, there's a little bit of like, Fritz, what the hell are you doing? You know, it's not all about the monster, but... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I totally agree. And it, the camera kind of follows Henry as he's leaving the room, and I think he's holding a whip or something up to his head, or like his hand, because he's holding it in his hand and his hand up to his head. It, it's almost like out of desperation that he's just like, oh, just leave him alone. Like I'm tired. I you know I, I'm done with this right now, and you're being terrible. Mm-hmm. But anyways, a- after Henry leaves, uh, this is when Fritz starts torturing uh, the monster with his torch. Mm-hmm. Then Henry and Waldman are are both reading when Fritz screams and they run downstairs to investigate and they find that Fritz has been hanged from the ceiling. I love the monster I, standing next to him. I love the reveal of this scene, the way the door opens. Oh, the, yeah. ca- the camera doesn't go into the room. We see from outside the room, but the way it's composed, you see the hanged Fritz first and then slowly then we get our glimpse of the monster and he's just looking right back at them and it's yeah, just it I was, love that it, shot. It was fantastic. And again, all the shadow because of the black and white, all the shadows and the walls and just just everything's just perfect. Here's when Henry decides that Waldman is right, that they should kill the monster, or that he really is a monster now. You know, uh, Henry finally realizes that he is this thing that must be put down. Essentially, they let it out of its of, of the room that they were holding it in. I think he goes straight for Henry Frankenstein, and then Waldman injects him in the back with a needle, and uh, the monster overpowers both them but then ultimately collapses from whatever sedative that Dr. Waldman had given him. I must point out that's another shot that was edited out of one of the releases of this movie. Again, I don't know if it was the original 31 or when it was re-released or whatever, but they used to cut out cut out the close-up of the needle going into the monster's back. And I'm thinking without that shot, you don't, like, Frankenstein just, like, gets tired and falls over, <laughs> or the monster know. just gets tired and fall, know, falls yeah. over. You, you need that shot. It's essential. I, I don't understand why they would do that. Uh, while they've just taken out the monster, Elizabeth and uh, and the Baron, uh, Henry's father, show up. Oh, one of these they, scenes. <laughs> oh, dude, he's the worst. <laughs> they decide to, uh, or they get let into the castle eventually after the Baron's rapping on the door with his, with his cane. In this scene, after finding Henry kind of collapsed from exhaustion, they decide to go ahead with their plans for the wedding and, and Henry's going to leave the castle. It's agreed between Henry and Waldman that Waldman is going to stay behind and perform a vivisection and kill the monster. Right. But then as he's in the middle of doing this, essentially the monster wakes up and strangles him and escapes the laboratory. Great stuff. Yeah, it's it, it's kind of a tense scene. I, it's also kind of sad because I, I really like Dr. Waldman as a character. Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, he's okay. I don't really have, um, you know, I, I don't really have much opinion on him, but I just love the way Karloff just slowly rises, raises his arm behind mm-hmm. Waldman. He can't see it. It's just a really neat, just a really neat shot. Yeah, for sure. So while this is going on, there's a big celebration throughout the town because of the announcement of the wedding. So there's dancing and drinking and just just all around partying. It kind of looks like your typical sort of Oktoberfest because... Exactly, yeah. I think this is supposed to be Germany, Switzerland, you know, somewhere. Yeah, in well, that. it was shot on the li- on the little Europe set at the oh at yeah the uh, Universal Studios. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's broadly just kind of European. I mean, Frankenstein again, going back to the novel, he studies in Switzerland. I think he's from 
Austria, Prussia, or Bavaria. Bavaria. There was there wasn't a Germany back then, so I don't know. But you're right. Like it, it looks, it, it's a very Germanic looking mm-hmm. town with Germanic parting and Germanic clothing. I mean, looks, there's lederhosen and looks, stuff. Looks like Milwaukee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> Just need a Harley Davidson out there and a no. couple more people passed out from oh, no. drinking too much. <laughs> it then cuts to the monster running through the woods, or I guess wandering through the woods. Uh, until he yeah, he can't he can't really run, but he's moving with urgency though. And he comes upon a little girl named Maria. She's holding her kitten. Her dad has just left to go into town to do something, but she invites him to play. She's well, actually, she's sitting by the lake. Which in the background, I'm pretty sure those are the Hollywood Hills, aren't they? Or like Mount? I think yeah, I, I believe you're right. Yeah, yeah. It looks very. It looks it looks almost like Switzerland though, or like German, or, or like I, I don't know some some European place with mountains somewhere across a beautiful. Well, lake. Willing to bet this exact location was used as an alien planet in Star Trek: The Original Series. Just throwing that out there. Absolutely. <laughs> it's in Absolutely. Southern California. It probably. <laughs> yeah, so she's sitting by the water, and uh, she's holding a, a little bouquet of daisies that she's picked, and she invites him to play with her. So they start throwing flowers into the water until they're out. And then the monster, not really understanding what's going on, he, he picks her up, picks up little Maria, and chucks her into the water, and then she starts to drown. And <laughs> the monster freaks out and yeah, he takes cannot. off, essentially. Yeah, this, I mean, this is, other than maybe the it's a live scene this is probably the most famous scene of the movie uh this is certainly the most famous scene of the movie in which you see karloff's face but mm-hmm. it's also it's such a great scene and i don't think the movie kind of presents the monster as all that sympathetic at first again going back to the first person who's who kind of opines on the monster is waldman it's not you know fritz we he has all that spiel about it being a monster and and that it's dangerous before we really see the monster doing anything then we see fritz you know torturing it and okay we feel but we feel bad for for it and a lot so much that's karloff's performance but then he also kills him and he kills waldman so at this point i don't know how sympathetic the monster is but there is something even though he kills a little girl here i think this scene makes him a lot more sympathetic because there's just something so like kind of heartbreaking about the little girl looking at him being unfazed looking at him and just like hey you look like you could be a friend you want to play with me and he's like so excited yeah well, and he because you see him smile that's yeah what's he, really... he's smiles and and again it kind of looks like someone learning how to smile someone who hasn't <laughs> dealt no but it, i mean that's great yeah, you're but right. it, someone who doesn't uh. really know what emotions are he's just kind of like learning them on the fly and then when he throws her in he he obviously does so out of an understanding he thinks she'll float just like the flowers do and he feels horrible when she doesn't and, and it's even though this is the kind of the most horrific thing he does it's also i think a huge scene for making me kind of this monster is just like if he was in a better environment if if it it was just him and frankenstein and no fritz maybe this guy could learn to function a bit i mean again from watching these kind of behind the scenes things i i think that's what most people who either study this movie or enjoy this movie come to realize i think but i'm not sure how like a 1930s audience would have would have read that scene yeah that's always a fair question to ask i mean I don't know. Have you seen any of the sequels to this movie? Have you seen, like, Bride of Frankenstein or anything? I saw about half of Bride of Frankenstein when I was a kid with my dad, which is the first time I saw uh, this Frankenstein sure. with my dad. 
I think I was just gonna I saw say I, another one on TV, but that's it. I was just gonna say I think they make him even arguably more sympathetic in that movie. So thing to and then well, we'll, and then he's less sympathetic after that in the series. So um, if you well, want Ride your s- is, sympathetic Karloff Frankenstein monster, there's two movies to turn to. It's this and Bride, pretty much. Well, uh, the next time we see the monster, I'm pretty sure it's the next time we see the monster. He's breaking into. It, is it the Baron's house or is it Elizabeth's house? I I kind of I kind of assumed it's the Baron's house and she's because the, Bar- the Frankenstein's are the rich people here. We don't really know anything about Elizabeth. Frankenstein has locked her in that room because they can hear the monster somewhere in the house. So they run around looking for for him, mm-hmm. but it turns out that he busts through the window, or actually he opens the window and climbs in. And Elizabeth starts screaming. She passes out, and the monster leaves. Essentially, he snarls back at yeah. her after she screams, which I think is a oh, great absolutely. moment. Absolutely, uh, that snarl too is just great. Oh yeah, classic sound. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. Then the, this scene, this next scene, is so sad, but it's also so just interesting to watch. The festivities in the town are interrupted as Maria's father is carrying her dead body through the street. The move, the camera moves along with him. It stays a couple feet away from him, so you see him carrying the entire way, and you see the people in the background go from dancing to like, oh my goodness, what's yeah, happening? Yeah, it was you just know, shock and, and horror, him. yeah. That actress, whoever plays the little girl, that's some good lifeless acting. Like he, it, he, it I, looks like he's carrying a dead body. It does not look like he's carrying someone who's pretending to be dead. I know. That's what I, I would either, say. either they gave her like a sedative or something, or she got the a same bunch thing of... they injected the monster. Exactly. Oh my god! Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they gave her too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also looks like. I feel bad for that little girl because, again, she did an amazing job in that scene, but it looks like her neck would have hurt so much after the filming. Oh, yeah, that's probably fair, too, yeah. I remember watching that with you uh, three years ago. I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, that girl's neck is, like, her head's going to fall off, you know? Uh, The father walks straight up to the the, uh, burgomaster. The burgomaster essentially says, who did this? And he's like, well, it was the monster. So the burgomaster insists that uh, justice will be done and an angry mob forms at nightfall carrying torches. I guess Frankenstein heard what had happened, right? And he joins the mob. Oh yeah, he's he's a, a willful participant in the mob. At this point, the monster, even if it didn't really do anything, it attacked his fiance. He's invested in this now. We and, and I mean, it killed his professor too. I don't know. We don't really know if he knows that, but Waldman's dead. I'm sure he probably didn't care about Fritz, but you know, this monster is, he's got to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so this mob kind of all comes together and it's the burgomaster who splits people up into three groups which i think is really neat because we get this really cool setting for this almost final encounter between henry and the monster and this this, i would say this is the this is the start of the final encounter exactly everything that comes after this is just an extension of this and so the setting you're referring to is this kind of this rocky again kind of star trek the original series kind of looking just thing it's it's again very clearly a set and I think it's they probably the could mountains. have, yeah. but it, I don't mind the rocks. I think that, you know, that looks great. Oh, they yeah. could have done a better job. They could have ironed those curtains oh, in the did, back. Yeah, I you mean, can see I mean, streaks in there. Them. You could see wrinkles <laughs> and stuff. I mean, it's as it looks a lot worse than the background in that opening scene, which you could still tell was a background, but here it's worse, but I still kind of like it. I appreciate it. It's great. I, I wish, I wonder if they painted it in black and white or if they painted it in color. That's what I was wondering because it, it looks, that's a great question. Color. Kind of an extension of that thought, but the monster's makeup, I assume that was just blacks and whites and grays, right? We don't yeah. know. Because everyone exactly. always pictures the monster as green. I don't know wh- where that started, but it's not here. <laughs> I saw a poster for The Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. And he was painted green. Okay. So, but uh, was that I, a re release or something? Oh, shit. See, I don't know. All right. Yeah. I'm actually 
I'm actually curious about that. But uh, so anyway, so Frankenstein encounters the the monster by coming across an injured man in the in the quote unquote mountains. The monster then overpowers Frankenstein and takes him inside of this old windmill where they they're inadvertently locked in by the angry mob. You're skipping over, and I this is something that you and I talked about three years ago. But the scene where the monster and Henry oh, fight damn in it, the that's again, right. mountains. Yes, there's he gets like thrown onto the torch and just keeps going like nothing catches fire. He's got the most like fire retardant pants or something well, but like I, he could have been seriously injured i love that i love how that turned out i'm sure it wasn't supposed to go that way after uh, the monster and frankenstein fight the monster throws henry over his shoulders and lugs him off to this windmill where they're locked inside i love i love the look of that oh windmill. It's, it's gorgeous it it's so gor- cool. and the way that the i guess the sails are turning it's just perfect uh, it just looks so spooky and creepy hashtag too spooky perfect for halloween they essentially get locked in from both the mob, but also a bar falls across the door. If I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so he kind of accidentally locks himself in. Yeah. The monster does. So he takes himself and Henry all the way up the stairs to the top of the windmill, where a fight ensues. I guess it's kind of a fight slash like trying to get away. It's kind of a hybrid between the two. Yeah, and then and it really kind of it's really kind of brutal to watch, to be honest. But the monster chucks Henry off the top of the windmill, and Henry slams onto a sail and then falls in theory it's brutal to watch it's not even a dummy it's like a scarecrow oh yeah yeah it looks so bad but like i'd like the idea of like he throws the body he gets caught on that and stays on it for a bit and then falls like it is i can imagine if this is a person like hitting that like breaking his back and then like but you have to use a little bit of your imagination because this is a film from 1931 so frankenstein survives and the villagers burn down the windmill seemingly killing seemingly the killing the monster exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I guess before I talk about the last couple of lines of the movie, I was looking at that windmill, and it was definitely miniature, right? Yeah, because that looked... I, I think so. I assume so. Because well, yeah. I was watch, rewatching the scene, like uh, I kind of re- rewinding and rewatching it, because it definitely looks like a miniature, but it is so well done. Where like the torches held by the villagers are just moving slightly. Come to think of it, I'm I'm not sure it is. I mean, I'm sure maybe in some shots, but like they throw a dummy out of it, right? That's not a miniature. Well, because then I could, well, then I thought. Maybe that's why it looks so well, bad. It, it's like... Exactly. This looks funny, but then I thought, was it like uh, stop motion? This is before King Kong, so I highly oh, doubt... Okay. Well, not that stop motion didn't exist, but I think it was kind of a select few people that practiced it, if you will. It was... It's going to bug me. What the hell is that King Kong? Willis O'Brien was the okay. King Kong guy. Well, then maybe the windmill was like roughly person-sized and they used a roughly person-sized scarecrow or dummy thing, but because then it... I don't know. Anyways... Yeah. Watch the end. It's a great shot. I love the shot of the miniature or whatever it is burning. And it's a good thing we talked about that because now we have to talk about the awful closing <sighs> scene, unfortunately. Yeah. The movie should have ended here. It should have. It should have. It, really it would have been a better ending. would have been a better movie. Yeah, well, then it cuts to the Frankenstein uh, house with the Baron looking after his son in bed. Uh, you can see him through the door. <laughs> and maids yeah. bring a bottle of, what was it, his grandmother's wine to, to, to Frankenstein the Younger. Yeah, there's like unnecessary details about the wine. I know, and then and then when the father answers the door, he's like, oh, "What is this?" And they're like, "Oh, it's grandmother's wine." He's like, "He doesn't need this," and he pours more wine in the already almost full glass. I don't know if you saw that. And then oh yeah, no, I think he's. I think the intent is that that character is a bit of a drunkard. Okay, I think okay, because I just thought he's a bit of an. Old I, 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 I mean, I think, I think that explains kind of the weirdness of the performance that we were talking about earlier. But yeah, so it just ends with him sipping a glass of grandmother's wine and telling the maids that Frankenstein will be all right, essentially. 
yeah, and the house will live on. Exactly, yeah, the family Which, name will. It's live a while on. before we get to the movie House of Frankenstein, so he's correct. That is one of the one of the sequels. Um, there's also a House of Dracula, which fits more aptly in the Frankenstein series because there isn't really a Dracula series from Universal. But anyways, but yeah, that's it. One hell of a movie, I think. I mean, it's we've pointed out a lot of ways in which it has aged. Obviously, the movie is 90 years old. Basically, of course, it's going to have aged. But at the same time, if you compare the film to other movies that came out around that time, I'm thinking chiefly Dracula. You know, released the same year, also from mm-hmm. Universal. This movie's so much more sophisticated. Not only, I think the acting is really, really good from the key players. I think some of the smaller roles, you know, maybe not as much. I guess that's the case with Dracula, too. Lugosi and Dwight Fry kill it in that movie. But this movie, just the camera, the the way it's edited, the camera movements are so much more sophisticated than Dracula, which comes off much more like a filmed play because the camera almost never moves in that movie. Not not to shit, not to shit on Dracula. It's a pretty good movie, too. No, but. no, no, of course. <laughs> oh, also, did you notice at the beginning of this? Oh, Shucks was his name. Uh, Karloff? No, Edward Van Sloan yeah. uh, gives his opening oh, little okay, monologue. Yeah. It cuts to a, a face of like Dracula fading in and out while it's giving the credits. Oh for yeah, I think that's supposed. I think that's just a generic ghoul. I don't think it's supposed to be Dracula. It's just okay. It was like the 1931 equivalent of like a Google image search for monster or something. That's kind of what I thought. Though <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Uh, and it's kind of got yeah. like this kaleidoscopy yeah credits yeah. right which actually yeah, looks pretty neat and again eyes all around it right Is that yeah and very and pretty yeah. sophisticated i think for 1931 even just that credit sequence i mean it's no Saul bass but it's great yeah i was wondering too like if if people were out of the people who saw this in theaters was anybody walking out because they were afraid was anybody mortified or shocked i mean I, there I, has I to know. be somebody right i mean well it's funny because i remember when halloween came out or i was talking to my mom about halloween years ago i was gonna go see it at a movie theater here and oh like like one of those releases yes yeah yeah, you, yeah. You show it for like, two nights or whatever yeah like when we saw 2001 kind of thing right yeah i was talking to her about it. i said you want to come i said I'll, I'll pay and she goes no and i said well i said why ma and she goes when i saw that when it came out i was so terrified i walked out halfway through and i'm like okay so and i because i had never seen halloween it's not even it's, it's like all the scary stuff is in the almost all know, the scary stuff is in the second half of that movie exactly what, so like, when, when i went to the theater because i'd never seen it no, I, that's I, not technically I, true <laughs> and i came home i was like mom what was you afraid of like you know, she's like, oh, I don't know. It was just terrifying. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. But th- th- that's what I was thinking about with Frankenstein. Was I was wondering if anybody was truly terrified. I can understand being kind of, being made uncomfortable, I guess. But It's all relative to what else someone, what else you've seen, exactly, right? Yeah. If, if Frankenstein's out in 1931, the average American would have not seen a story like that depicted. I mean, you know. Digging up graves alone is pretty creepy, right? And a little sick and twisted. And so, so I think that's why that little opening scene is there. I'm sure yeah. some people did find it. Well, p- people did find it objectionable. Again, going back to the censorship of that, you know, that God line. So I, I think that scene is was probably pretty warranted back in the day. Like I said, it's a little funny now, but I like that they still include it. So what else did you like about this movie? I mean... 
Well, pretty much everything. I think three years ago when we were watching it together, we just kept on talking about how much we absolutely loved everything. I mean, the lighting, the acting, the way Karloff portrays the monster. I mean, it's, it's just perfect. And I mean, it's a movie like this that goes down in history as, as, a, as a true classic for all of these mm-hmm. reasons, you know? In my opinion, this is either a perfect movie or a near-perfect movie, other than the fucking father he's terrible i think i think you could even have the father but just not have him in that last scene i think that last scene really uh, and i mean because he's not even necessary because it's revealed after frankenstein lands after he hits he hits the was it the fin the sail the yeah yeah, what on the windmill the sail okay after he hits that and he hits the ground the villagers are picking him up and they're like they they're like oh he's they say something like oh he's injured but he's gonna be okay or something yeah and the, and the the whole dad scene seems like it's there to be kind of tell us that he's actually going to be okay, but we didn't need that. I also don't think, obviously, this movie would have a sequel years later, and Henry Frankenstein is back, but if this movie exists in a vacuum, we're not to have a sequel. I think the movie kind of ends on a higher note, if you will, if he dies, if he's yes. killed by his own creation. There's something kind of poetically satisfying about that. Oh, for sure, yeah. As you were just talking about that last scene with, with Henry's father, I was wondering if they maybe put it in there just as kind of like a lighthearted thing to, to round off a terrible, scary movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, movie, you know? it's it's definitely director James Whale's thing to mix in humor with his horror movies. He he made four horror movies. He did Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Old Dark House, and The Invisible Man. The Invisible Man is a hilarious movie. It's very, very funny. Bride of Frankenstein, some of the comedy is, in my opinion, awful, but it has a, some pretty funny moments. And this, this of course, is the first of, of those movies that he directed, so I think he just hadn't quite gotten down his tone yet, this kind of darkly comedic and very, very campy tone in a way. Even though I like this movie better than Frankenstein, I think I, there's nothing in Bride that's as jarring as 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 Baron in this movie I don't well that's actually not true anyways yeah so I think this is just kind of the director trying to trying to find his voice he would do something different than the other horror movies the other monster movies of the time in that how he mixed in humor but but at the same time this movie is it's not enough to say it's a dark comedy I think you can probably say Bride of Frankenstein or certainly the Invisible Man are dark comedies but this movie it's it's a sci-fi horror movie there's there's a little tiny bits of comedy there but and they all suck unfortunately but yeah and I mean those are my thoughts on Frankenstein again you know I'm not a huge film buff but I, I I thoroughly enjoy Frankenstein what do you think Patrick what's your takeaway I guess as I said at the outset I love this movie this is a fantastic movie I really appreciate I'll use the phrase economical story storytelling because this movie again (laughs) is super short but at the same time it feels like it tells its story almost as well as it could you could not add a whole lot of more scenes of either exposition or something to kind of make this story work better and i think that this movie is often criticized because oh it's a poor incomplete adaptation of mary shelley's novel and yeah they have very little in common but i like viewing it as its own thing because it tells a a similar story to the novel all of the details are different but it still tells it very very effectively and and there's something mary shelley about that in a way yeah i mean it's i was thinking about this because not to get too personal i guess i just finished writing a dissertation not too long ago but this movie's kind of like a good dissertation you know it's that it takes forever to write and you hate yourself by the time it's done (laughs) yeah that's exactly it yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> but no, it's uh, it's it's short, concise, oh, okay. and to the point. It gets everything in there. You don't need to add anything else to it. It, it doesn't really have any fluff. Maybe a few of the fluff, Baron scenes, you know? but again, that adds up to probably about five minutes of screen exactly. time at most. Also, before we move on, because you, you brought up something at the beginning, uh, talking oh, yeah? about Frankenstein. I'm sure I did. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but you were, you were talking about how, how it was hard to tell when this movie was set, really. Like, if it was kind of a modern... Oh, yeah. Would people have seen this as a modern horror, horror story? You know, would people have been looking at this being like, holy shit, honey, I wore that same shirt two weeks ago. Oh, my God. This is nuts. This is crazy. This is terrifying, too. It's happening in our time. They can do this now. You know? I don't think that that's that important. And I also think it's like the novel Frankenstein, 1818. So even in 1931, that's a long time ago. That's like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's similar timeline to if we were to adapt Dracula today. But at the same time, a lot of these other classic yeah. horror stories were in a lot of these people's lifetimes. Dracula comes from 1897. Turn of the Screw is like 1894, 1895. I don't think... You know, when we think of like gothic horror, it's always in the past. It's Victorian times and stuff like that. But I think there was a modernity to that kind of genre in this time, if that makes any sense. But you, you know, Poe was a while ago, but Lovecraft was, he was, this was like in his lifetime. He was writing around this time. I think. I don't know Lovecraft that well. That concludes our discussion on James Whale's Frankenstein. Please stick around with us as we discuss. Takashi Miike's audition, which is available on Shutter. So our second film in our double feature here is Audition. 1999, directed by Takashi Miike, a film that made its North American premiere on October 2nd, 1999 at the Vancouver Film Festival. It was theatrically released in Japan just a few months later in March of 2000, and then it got its U.S. debut at the Seattle International Film Festival and saw a U.S. limited release in August 8th, 2001. Yeah, so what a movie. Yeah, you can say that again. (laughs) (laughs) This is just a heads up to... As we always do, we are going to go into the plot in details here, but but this is a film that I a- absolutely urge you to go into it knowing as little as possible before you watch the movie, which I believe is how, Jim, how you saw it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you messaged me or called me or something, and you said, hey, don't look up anything about this movie, just go into it. And I said, yeah, sure, no problem at all. <laughs> I think that's the best way to see it for a few reasons. One, because this is one of those movies, I can think of a few that you would consider horror movies, where they switch genres and at at a certain point of the movie the movie is no longer what it was and now is a different thing this movie does that i think you could say don't look now kind of does that you know the wicker man is another one of those movies where it's kind of like it's a horror movie for like one scene and that's kind of it before we get into it it is weird i mean i don't we're going to talk about it in a second but for anybody watching it's kind of a really slow burn but there are things in it that are kind of horror-y but not It's just hard to explain, I think. Like, there's things in it that make you feel off or, or unsettled in that kind of horror-y way. But for the most part, it's not a horror movie until a certain point, I guess. And then it is the most oh horror movie, yeah. arguably. 
when I first saw this movie, I, I truly believed, I'm like, this is the scariest movie I've ever seen. I still stand by that, I think. I think my issues of watching The Grudge when I was a kid, that might be, that still might be up there for me. I've never oh, really watched that okay. movie. Another Japanese, in that case, I'm assuming you're talking about the American remake, but the Japanese movie. I think originally. I saw the Japanese one first. Maybe it was the American remake. I don't know. It was years ago, though. Like early 2000s, I guess. But yeah, this one, Audition, was definitely something. All right. Well, another, another reason, a Hopefully we didn't give too much away right there. But another reason I strongly encourage someone to go into this movie knowing as little about it is because, and this is something you even mentioned to me, the movie's basically spoiled by its own like DVD cover art. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately, and and part of me gets that because how do you market the movie based on what the movie that we get for the first 90 minutes? I understand why you market it for the last 25 minutes or so, but it's just also kind of unfortunate. Yeah. I probably never would have seen this movie ever if I didn't know what the movie becomes, but part of me wishes I could have gone into it completely fresh and just had that rug pulled out from underneath me because, well, we'll get into it without much further ado. Alright, so this film is directed by Takashi Miike. That name probably means little to anyone who isn't a pretty hardcore horror fan or someone who's not familiar with this film, but he's... Well, it definitely means something to me now, I can tell you that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, this is is his best known movie, at least in America. I understand it wasn't very positively received in his native Japan. He's had other movies that are more widely known there that are much less known here, but I think... Sorry to interrupt you. Before we continue, I watched this DVD that I got from this video place that was a 2009 re-release but other than that it was the exact same except at the very beginning there was an interview with the director oh yeah where he said uh, I feel quite nervous sitting in this chair and the person behind the camera said why is that and he goes well it's kind of like in my movie you know this is yeah. kind of like an yeah. audition and the guy said oh okay but he briefly said something along the lines of I hope you enjoy this movie it came out 10 years ago so it might be a little dated but cinema in Japan has changed since then and I hope it continues to change dramatically or something like that and, Interesting. but then he apologized for, for anybody who doesn't like it to be honest and then, then they had, I think they had the actress who plays Asami Asami yeah and she, she apologized too to anybody who didn't or won't like it which was interesting and then that, that's that, that's interesting that so you get kind of your you know equivalent of edward van sloan giving kind of a, mm-hmm. <laughs> a little mm-hmm. warning to you i didn't have that because i just watched this film on shutter where it's available again if you want to watch that movie before you hear what we have to say about it go try it out on shutter but anyways takashi Mike is I think he's a fascinating person. His movies often go to the extreme. They often lack in subtlety, although I don't think that's the case here, even though there is a lot of extreme in it. He actually directed a movie, I think, called Three Extremes or something like that. <laughs> oh, but my gosh. <laughs> he's, even though he's most known for horror movies, he's made over 100 movies. He's only been directing since, like, the mid-'90s or something. He used to release five or six a year because he, he operated, he was kind of part of the V cinema movement over in Japan, which V standing for video. I'm not sure if it means shot on video or direct to video, but either way, it kind of points to a smaller budget, so he was probably able to make those movies a lot faster. He eventually got to the point where he's making bigger budget movies, which... I believe Audition is is one of those. Just last year, actually, 2019, he had my second favorite movie of the year, First Love, another kind of movie that's hard to describe because it's kind of everything. I love Takashi Miike. I will never see all of his films. I'll never see half of his movies because there's too many of them. He's made (laughs) children's films even, which is in itself is shocking. 
So the movie opens with a young boy named Shigehiko bringing a little dinosaur diorama to his dying mother in a hospital. Before he can get there, though, the mother passes away with her husband, Shigeharu, by her side. Also, apologies if I get any of these names wrong. I'm doing my best. I have confirmation on those, typed confirmation, but I talked to a friend of mine who knows Japanese, be reading. Anyways, so she dies, and I, I like this opening scene. It's, it's sad, and there's something... Like, like, this is, if you thought this was a horror movie, like, this opening scene is obviously not a horror movie. It opens, like, this tear-jerking drama, and, and but I think it does so very effectively. When, when the boy comes in and sees right away that the mother's dead, he just kind of, like, stares, and he's not sure what to do, and just the way the husband is losing it, but the doctor's kind of just like, oh, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but kind of going about on his day. It's just, it's hard, you know, people talk about that opening scene of Op, the Pixar yep. movie. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yep, yep. Is that opening scene is like it's like a little five minute kind of montage of these two people meeting falling in love getting married growing old and one of them dies and it's like i kind of get the same kind of thing out of this scene even though there's no montage it's just like this little kind of slice of of their lives kind of thing but anyways well, yeah, i mean i was just saying it's it's yeah because it's just as effective because you know although it does show a slice of life it shows a son who loves his mother mm-hmm. and a husband who loves his wife deeply both yeah. very deeply and uh the movie picks up seven years later Shigeharu and Shigehiko still live together. I think the son is supposed to be about 17 here. And he says to his father that he thinks, you know, you really ought to look into remarrying. I think you could be, you'd be a lot happier. Shigeharu goes into work. We don't quite know what he does at work yet, but he learns that his secretary is getting engaged. It's kind of weird because this is the first kind of feeling of unease you get because there's like this weird interaction between him and his secretary who just kind of stands there. And stares at him. She stops him and goes, oh, you know, I'm going to be married. Right. And he kind of half turns. He's like, oh, yeah. To who? And she's like, well, you don't know. At this point, this isn't a horror movie, but there is feelings of uneasiness, like social, (laughs) you know, uneasiness or something. I thought that was kind of almost a bit of a comedic point. It's like, I thought it was kind of like, okay, his son brought up marriage and now everywhere he looks, marriage is on everybody's mind. That's kind of oh, how I yes. looked yeah, I at that. that. I thought it was yeah. kind of like a bit of kind of awkward comedy. That's So Shigeharu meets with his film producer friend. And Jim, what was his name? Oh, the coolest name? Yoshikawa, isn't that it? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Yoshikawa. And they kind of discuss loneliness. And um, he mentions that his son brought up marriage or re- remarrying to him. And he's not really sure what he should do. He does know how to go about meeting women at, at his age which you know is kind of understandable and Yoshikawa comes up with the idea to have an open casting call for a film based on one of Shigeharu's scripts or stories and that they can audition 30 attractive young women and Shigeharu can pick one to potentially marry mm-hmm. and this is something where this is this is clearly just a cultural difference but when they talked about marriage Yoshikawa asked him about you know well have you thought about an arranged marriage like I'm not 100% sure how these kinds of dating and relationships work here because after eventually he does date someone and though we think they've only been dating for maybe a week or two there's already kind of talk of marriage so as an American American, I'm, that's a little kind of yeah. I mean, I off to me. That could just be a Japanese thing, and you know, it maybe it's a Japanese 1999 thing, and it's not. It's you know. Yeah, well, it was I don't even, know because <laughs> even I was surprised when he brought up kind of arranged marriage, and then the father says, you know, here's the other thing that also might have been a joke. Well, yeah, exactly. That you yeah. and I didn't pick up on because maybe arranged marriages are 
kind of old and weird to these characters as they would be to us. I don't know. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the, the frustrations every now and then of watching a foreign language film. This is kind of our setup here, and this is could easily turn into kind of a Weinstein situation. <laughs> and I think the film is aware of that. I think I, I don't think we're meant to believe that this largely fraudulent plan to get Shigeharu a wife. I don't think we're really supposed to think this is okay. And to be fair, Shigeharu has some reservations about it, but he ultimately goes through with it. Mm-hmm. He complains about it feeling awkward, I guess, at several points to Ishikawa. He's uncomfortable about it, but he also doesn't really know what else to do. So, Oh, and also to kind of to make it sound less like a, you know, a Weinstein situation, Yoshikawa explains that, you know, you wouldn't be marrying the woman we cast because she would be too high profile for you. You can marry one of the, you know, the three or four kind of last candidates that didn't quite make it. Which, which is actually kind of darkly humorous in a way. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Shigeharu gets the portfolios and reviews them. He's supposed to select 30 women to audition. He's drawn to a woman named Asami, who explains in her little, they refer to it as a CV, CV later, that you know she's not really an actress. She just kind of thought she'd try this. She was an aspiring ballet dancer who broke her hip at 18 and thus, you know, had to kind of figure out, you know, how to move on with her life. And this really strikes Shigeharu. Mm -hmm. Uh, When they are auditioning the women, this is a very comedic scene. This is a, uh, but it's also a little unsettling in a way too, but especially what's gone on in actual Hollywood about casting people. It is is a very comedic scene. It's it's, uh, a montage where, you know, each woman approaches this role or this project as from a very different perspective. There are women that immediately take off their, you know, shirt you know, in their clothes because they think that's what's going to get them cast. But at the same time, all of the questions being asked are super weird, too. They're more questions about getting to know someone than they are about, like, can you perform this part? They're clearly, even though Yoshikawa asks all the questions, they're clearly written for Shigeharu to get information to see who he would like to date. Yeah, well, I mean, because there were questions like, you know, have you had sex with anyone you didn't like? Do you do drugs? What does your father do for work? Questions about, yeah, what was your father? <laughs> What does your father do? Well, there was yeah. even because there was even a bit too because right before this, Yoshikawa had said in speaking about the actress, he said something like because he was talking about the leading lady and he said you don't want the leading you don't want to marry the leading actress. But not only is that somebody you don't want to marry, but she can act too well. So at some points in the questioning at, at the audition, oh, yes. he says, "Can you show us a bit of your yes. acting?" And then they go, uh-huh, "Okay." And then you can see like these good actors and bad act or good actresses and bad actresses. And that line that you referred to about you know the the lead actress will be able to act too well. He says something like. Like, to be a really great actress, you have to have a lot of pain. And and if you want to marry yes. someone who's oh, going to make right. you happy, maybe you don't want to marry someone who carries with them a lot of pain. That's right. But at the yeah. same time, that's not who he's drawn to because up 28th of the 30 actresses is Asami, who comes in wearing all white. And this is the first time Shigeharu speaks up and he asks her questions. He refers to her cv and says like I, I i was really impressed with your emotional maturity while wow, you broke your hip and you know all of this stuff happened to you it's like how do you keep going the thing i like about that specific part of the scene is that yoshikawa kind of looks at him because this is the first time he's spoken up during the whole process yes and yes just, that's like, right star- yeah. he's staring almost bewilderment like why are you talking to this woman who like but but he also kind of like realizes like okay this exactly, is why he, yeah. this is why he wasn't speaking up with all the other ones he already kind of had his decision made Exactly, yeah. 
kind of after this, Yoshikawa tells Shigeharu that he thinks Asami kind of makes him nervous, even though he can't really explain why. And at this point, yeah, I don't think I mean, we can either, because she seemed normal enough, right? Well, you know what? I'm going to tell you what. I, or I'm, right. I'm going to tell you why she made me nervous, because she has the same hair as the girl from The Grudge. That's why she made okay. me nervous. As <laughs> oh, soon as no. I saw that, I was like... She makes me nervous because she looks like this <laughs> other Japanese woman. It's basically exactly. what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, xenophobia. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, thought you were, I thought you were going to say, she reminds me of the woman on the cover of the DVD. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> because that would scare me. <laughs> But yeah, well, I mean, and the other great part about this scene is that Yoshikawa is, he's kind of like a wise sage in disguise, I guess, where he lights a cigarette after she leaves the room and he goes, can we have a 15 minute break? And he looks at Shigeharu and he goes, well, you know, of, of course you've picked this woman before based mm-hmm. on her picture. You've been waiting for her all day. And he said, but she makes me nervous and I don't know why, as you said. But then he lights a cigarette and he goes, I don't know, she just made me want to have a smoke. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know? And I, I just really like that. And I think he's right, because as soon as she leaves the room, like a weight has been lifted. And you're like, oh, that woman is kind of strange. So Shigeharu is obviously interested in Asami and wants to learn more about her. She mentions something about having an agent who wasn't like really a proper acting agent, but worked for mm-hmm. some record company. And Yoshikawa looked into that, and that guy apparently went missing 18 months ago. Yeah, but yeah. But Shigeharu does go on a date with Asami, and on that date, he learns that, okay, she was lying about the representation because she thought that's just what you were supposed to do, that you that she would sound like a better candidate for the role if she said something like that. And so you think, okay, misunderstanding cleared up, right? At the end of the date, she, do, she does say that she really wants to see him again. Mm-hmm. So Yoshikawa and, and Shigeharu continue to talk a little bit about what's going on, and, and Yoshikawa says that he can't find any more information about her and kind of repeats what he had said earlier, like, this kind of makes me uneasy. You should really take this relationship slow. And then we have this little scene where we see Asami waiting by her phone. She apparently does this all day waiting for Shigeharu's call and it's really uneasy and there's also this big sack this big bag in her apartment yeah and thinking, that's, okay that's what's, like what's the that first about horror element I guess well well it's not even really horror yet it's like because it hasn't moved yet it eventually moves yeah but I mean looking at it you're you know there's a body in there you know or something in there I think there's a beanbag chair she just hasn't gotten around to uh <laughs> unpacking what a since lazy her girl Jeez, Louise. no because it kind of reminds me of like okay you cover furniture and stuff it's like well that wouldn't fit over a couch uh, beanbag chair why not <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> Shigeharu does eventually call her and when when he calls her she's actually sleeping or at least I think she's sleeping in her apartment but she's like hunched down like sitting on the ground like that's how she sleeps and again she's right by the phone to answer it and when she does answer it she like agrees to go on a date and then the bag moves and there's this like scary noise yeah like a growl of an animal or something yeah, it's a very animalistic sound. But again, here, like I, I want to kind of emphasize the horror aspects to the movie because this is when they do start coming in. Because this is also when, like, because when she has been asleep, completely hunched over, like her head is drooped. That is so far down. Stuff. Yeah, and the camera shows us a shot of her back, like her spine, almost yes. like, just right up against her skin, and it's just so disturbing. Then, as the phone is yeah. ringing, it cuts to her with this sinister smile underneath this yes, long black that's hair, right. and yeah. then she kind of slowly lifts her head. 
Yeah, absolutely. At this this scene, I agree. This is probably our first real disturbing moment. And as far as this, you know, a scale of one to ten for this movie and disturbing, this is probably about a two. But <laughs> it is something. And and you're right. I think there's something about we don't really know what's happening. We don't know why this is creepy, but we know it's creepy because we still don't really know anything about this woman. Exactly. Yeah. So the two of them continue to go on a couple more dates. They learn a bit more about each other, or really he learns more about her. They never really talk about him. We get the impression that's how he wants it to. Mm -hmm. She mentions something about a bar that she works at part-time to help out a friend. She names it, what what was the name of it? It's like the, the stonefish. Stone, the stonefish, yeah. She yeah. says like it has a funny name, which it's not that funny of a name. Maybe it's funnier in <laughs> Japanese, I don't know. Yeah, there's some joke we're not getting. <laughs> yeah, you and I have lived in England. We know funny bar names, okay? This is this is very low on that scale. <laughs> the cock and bottle? Like, come on, really? <laughs> oh, so also regarding the stonefish, she does make it clear that she she discourages him from visiting her at work there. So after after again, we don't really know how many more dates. There's we see two different locations. It's possible that's one date that just you know drinks and then dinner or something. It might be two dates. That's what I was thinking. But anyways. Shigeharu is at home with his son. He's in his son's room, which I love. I, I love this scene because we see that his son still loves dinosaurs, like he did seven years ago, <laughs> yeah. which is great. Especially because you know if, if he was ten years old in that opening scene, that was the age when I was obsessed with dinosaurs. <laughs> but even by about the time I was seventeen, I wasn't. So I loved that he still is. That's so cool. Uh, anyways, they have a little discussion. The father mentions that, okay, I've got a girlfriend. He mentions that she's much younger than him, and he hopes, you know, you're okay with that. Other than the son jokes about, like, oh, she's closer to my age than yours. Like, <laughs> yeah. he's really excited for his dad. He is. And Shigeharu mentions that he and Asami are going to go away for a weekend for, like, a little trip. This is also where proposal is mentioned. Again, so just call back to I'm not sure how long courtship lasts in Japan or... Yeah, well, there's also, but, I mean, this with uh, what we talked about, I guess, last episode with Killer Workout. Oh, God. There's really no... <laughs> I know. This and Killer Workout are on the same level. But with both movies, there's really no way to judge how fast time is passing or yeah. how many days have gone by yeah i think so i think it, that's it's just all guesstimation really that's fair and I, not to sound like because i do like this movie and you know killer workout is just kind of trash i don't want to say like oh that's okay <laughs> in this movie but it kind of is i think because it's like this movie it, it is very psychological we get a lot of stuff especially at the end where we're not really sure what's dream what's reality yeah, anyways, this this is a bit better than Killer Workout. Well, and I mean, well, yeah, I mean, and going back to the passage of time stuff, I mean, because it really doesn't matter in this movie, to be honest. It doesn't matter how, how long it is, because, I mean, from the very beginning, when uh, Yoshikawa and Shigeharu are talking about trying to find Shigeharu a wife, it's just all happening so quickly, you know mm -hmm. I mean? It's just... The only character you have in the movie telling anybody to slow down is Yoshikawa, and he's like, you gotta slow down. And he was the so one I mean, who started it all. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, again, this could be over a week or a month or a year. We don't know, but it, honest, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Right, yeah, I suppose. So, on that little weekend getaway, Asami strips naked, and they have sex, but not until after she makes Shigeharu promise that he will devote his love only to her. Mm-hmm. And she shows him those burn scars. That's right. Yeah, she's got. Thigh. Which does she say what that's from? At this point, we she learn says, what it's from later on. But I think she says something. She says that she uh, she accidentally burned herself. Yeah, I, th I think that I think the word accident was thrown in there, but I couldn't remember if it was like a car accident. But yeah, it's, it's an accident of some kind. We see eventually what that's from. In the morning, 
Shikaharu wakes up and Asami's gone and he can't track her down. He tries to go through Yoshikawa and they can't find her anything and you know he's combed over her CV and can't find any ways that he could find her until he remembers the ballet academy that she mentioned. Mm-hmm. So he goes and checks out there and it's closed and it's abandoned but he breaks in and it still appears to be closed and abandoned except for there's one guy just kind of sitting there in a wheelchair. He's got prosthetic feet that eventually we get like close up of they look like very like crudely oh God, disgusting <laughs> made almost like something like dr frankenstein yeah. would make they're not like it's not like those plastic or whatever that you would get from like a hospital it looks, it looks like plasticine um, like he went to the dollar store <laughs> and got a bunch of plasticine little bricks you know <laughs> well he kind of he sewed them together i think there's like a there's yeah, like yeah there's like an opening almost like shoelaces that he had to like close it's it's really kind of creepy and this guy you know well shigeharu asked this guy okay do you remember Asami? Do you know where she is? And his reaction to that name, I don't know how to explain it. How would you put it? I'm I'm at a loss for words. It's almost like a mix of joy and maybe just pure joy, but it's joy at at Shigeharu's expense. Yeah, he says something like, oh, did you touch her? Did you smell her? Did you feel her? Yeah, and there's there's clearly like, okay, this person had some kind of weird And he's laughing at him the whole time, too. And he's yeah. laughing at him. Yeah, there's, like you said, okay, there's like a maybe 40% joy, 75% creepiness. Yeah, I mean, especially up, with right? the feet. There's, well, yeah, I Let's mean. Let's go 50-50. I... <laughs> 40, 40% joy, 75% creepiness, 50% prosthetic feet. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's all disgusting, whatever it is. So Shigeharu really only has one more place to go to kind of try and track down Asami, and it is the Stonefish, a bar that has been closed for about a year. It's it's like a bar located in an apartment building kind of thing, right? Isn't that what yeah, that like was? in the basement of an apartment building? I th- I think yeah, so, yeah, which might be a super common thing in Tokyo, I don't really know. He does kind of meet one of the bar's neighbors, and he mentions, okay, it's been closed. The owner of it was murdered, and at the crime scene, cops discovered three extra fingers, an extra tongue, and an extra ear. And you're thinking, okay, what the hell? It was extra disturbing because the way he described it was he said the owner was murdered a year ago. And yeah, I'm sure you know exactly what I'm going to say. And the floor is slanted in this building. Mm-hmm. So the only reason we discovered it was because blood was coming out from under the door and like pooling at the bottom yeah. of the stairs. And when the cops opened the door, they found the body chopped up into little bits. Mm-hmm. And that's when, when the cops were trying to put it together, they found the three extra fingers, an extra right, yes. ear, and an extra tongue. Which Shigeharu kind of hallucinates those extra yeah. body parts in the little the corner. They're flapping around like the tongue. Oh, kind of reminds yeah. me of the, like those chattering teeth toys kind That's of thing. That's exactly what I was thinking of, yeah. <laughs> but it's creepy. It's a nice visual. Then, though we don't really see her, this is kind of uh, shot from her point of view, Asami breaks into Shigeharu's house. It's kind of a strange shot. It's like kind of sped up how she goes around, and it's all from her perspective, of course. Mm -hmm. But she notices a photograph of Shigeharu and his wife, and then the camera finds his liquor, and Asami presumably drugs it. It's, It's a strange scene. I don't really know how to describe it. That's kind of what that is, but no, yeah. I mean, it's 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 almost as like somebody strapped a camera to somebody's chest and then they ran into the house, ran up. The yeah, stairs, it's it's all like sped down. up. Oh, oh, she she takes the dog too. Well, she she calls him over or something because he's eating his food. Yes, and he walks well, out of frame. 
Yeah, the dog's name is Ganju. So there's then a flashback to the date that Asami and Shigeharu had had, and she talks about how she was abused. There's a long history there. It's not just like a quick thing. It's a reasonably long little speech. Mm -hmm. This is new information we're being fed, even though it's from a scene that we've seen. Shigeharu comes home, drinks the liquor, and starts hallucinating. We think, I guess. Well, I mean, he, he stumbles around. One of his first kind of things, he imagines himself, again, imagines, we're, we're not really sure what's reality, what's imagination mm-hmm. here, but he's in Asami's home, and... Oh, I hate this part. Oh, my God. A woman comes on to him. At first, it's Asami, then it's his son's girlfriend, then it's someone else, then it's his wife, well, it's, right? it's also the woman... Um, the housekeeper? Uh, the secretary. Oh, the secretary. Oh, okay. yeah, the, the housekeeper, too, but yeah. I don't think it's five from people. Work. It has to be one or two of well, those that it's not. I don't think it's five different people, but... Well, because it's Asami that lunges at his crotch, at his pants. Yes, she, well, she's the first <laughs> she's one. She's like, I need you now. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to... Uh, I, th- I, th- I think it cuts to the secretary. Okay. And she's like, you don't love me anymore? You know, you fucked me once, and that was it i knew you thought it was a mistake and then it cuts to the son's girlfriend who we'd only seen really in like one scene i I actually wasn't 100 percent sure who that was and i think she had some kind of line that like mentioned his son or something it's like oh that's who that is (laughs) there's like a brief pause and then this japanese school girl was like oh look at you you got a heart on then he like hops up off the floor and (laughs) backs away from her yeah and then that's when he kind of bumps into the bag again that same bag that we had and a person comes out of that and this person Ugh. is missing three fingers, missing his tongue, and missing an ear. Yeah. This is... I might find this scene more disturbing than the really disturbing stuff that we get to later. Because, again, we talked about that one scene, Asami hunched over near the phone. That was a two on the disturbing, mm-hmm. creepy scale. This is probably an eight. It goes up to 11 soon enough. This is an eight well, or a nine, I think. You know what? I'm going to say this is a ten because... It's even more disturbing because the color of the person that comes out, they clearly haven't bathed in a long time. They're just covered in dirt. Yeah, this and, person's and been held captive there exactly. for however long. I can't tell if it, if Shigaharu is holding his mouth not to puke or scream or if he's holding his mouth and nose because of the smell. Oh, sure. And like I, just seeing that happen, I just I just felt sick cuz I was like that's all disgusting. Oh, and, and they don't have any feet either. That's right. And we we understand. Stumps. So we already we we don't yet understand the connection with the Well, no, I just we did see that gentleman without the feet. Yeah. And we obviously heard about the three fingers, the tongue and the ear, so we kind of see where that is. But then Asami over in the other room pukes into Ugh. a bowl, like a dog bowl, and comes and feeds it to this guy and fun fact that's real puke no it isn't i should put it this way she really puked i don't believe what he is actually consuming is real puke but apparently the actress who played asami i don't have the name written down apparently she's like a method actress and she insisted on doing that but i agree i don't believe that i sure as hell hope that guy is not actually eating that i know this is again this is this is kind of a barf bag movie where you kind of it gets messed up but but when do you think? But when do you think? Because I mean, because in the in the scene, she pukes into this dog bowl and then walks it over to the thing, the person, the thing that was a person on the floor. But like it's dripping the whole way there. Yes. But I'm wondering at what point they cut and like and because <laughs> now they know that that was real puke. I'm wondering at what point did they cut and replace that dripping puke with I don't know this whatever liquid. Or you know what? Come to think of it. Until... 
<laughs> no, I actually yeah. have a, I actually have another alternative because okay. we don't actually see her puking. We hear her puking and we see yeah. like kind of her back and her side a little bit. She might have yeah. just been puking into like a sink and then this was already poured and she comes and brings, you know. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's possible. I don't know. Takashi Miike, I mean, who the hell knows? Email us, write this us, is... Takashi. Uh, you know, let us know. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyways, I... Ugh, disgusting. And I, I, I've got to ask you, this guy, this gentleman who's missing, you know, everything, who do you think he is? We don't really know. I assume he's the agent that went missing 18 months ago, right? Yeah, well, at first I assumed that it was... Because at this point, you don't know what's what's reality and what is this fucked up nightmare thing. Right. And at first I assumed that it was the fella playing the piano in the ballet school that... Shigeharu oh sure had run into but then I realized oh that guy was bald and this person had a bunch of like matted hair on their head so can't possibly be that person yeah I thought it must be the agent yeah I think it's got to be the agent that they mentioned anyways kind of continuing on with these flashbacks slash dream sequences whatever you would call them Asami walks up to that guy without the feet who's playing the piano and she garrotes him to death to the point where it severs his head she doesn't just kind of cut or choke him she cuts mm-hmm. his head off and this is considerably less disturbing than what we had just seen but it's still Which, pretty messed uh, up i don't know right? if we mentioned this from the last scene but what was even more disturbing was that the guy on the floor ate the puke out of the dog bowl i don't know if we mentioned that we might have uh, oh, oh yeah okay. i mentioned I mean, that because we were talking about well, we thought just... they edited it or did something because you know let's just hang on that for a second because it doesn't sound that disturbing listening to this you might think oh that's not that gross but really when you see it in person it's absolutely disgusting i it it made me sick to my stomach but then you're right she walks it it cuts to this ballet school where she garrets this guy is this also where we learn what he did to her in this scene yes uh and i think that's when she's walking up to him because then she describes the wire and how it can cut through flesh and bone yeah yeah and and during this flashback this is also where we learn a where that burn on her Mm -hmm. thigh came from and also what she has against this guy and it's he burned her with a uh what's that called to me i'm not sure they they just looked like little tiny like metal sticks or something that he had shoved in this little i i thought it was one thing i thought later we see two metal six but anyways so she burns him and I, there's heavily implied pedophilia in their past relationship yes, too yeah. because this is when she's a ballerina so she's you know maybe 11 or mm-hmm. 12 we don't really know but we even saw from the the scene with this guy and shigeharu that he's really creepy towards asami so overall very disturbing stuff still even if we're not looking at puke being consumed then Shigeharu wakes back up in his home and we get a brief glimpse of Ganju being dead, the dog. Yeah. And Asami rolls him up onto like this blanket thing and she's about to perform some kind of surgery on him. She explains that the drug that he has, which is a made up drug, Takashi Miike said he had to make up the drug for the movie to work, that the drug he has basically leaves him paralyzed, but his nerves are extremely sensitive to pain. And we're about to see a lot of pain. She sticks him over and over again with a bunch of needles, taking her time with them. It's a really, like, think acupuncture on steroids here right yeah i was about to say that it's a really it's a really it's disturbing to begin with because i like acupuncture is disturbing looking to me (laughs) i know i know but it's like at first it's kind of like oh this is bad but it's just acupuncture 
after she's putting them near his eyes which that's the kind of the brutal stuff she kind of brushes up against them or bangs them a little bit the needles and there's a metallic sound and that just like did so much like that's how much these things weigh these are not acupuncture needles these are small metal rods and it's like that's that just that little sound that they had just made that that much creepier for me and i i i'm willing to bet that's why they put that in the movie too to kind of just show how much these weigh yeah she then takes the same wire that she had used on piano footless guy (laughs) and uses them kind of binds shigeharu's feet and starts almost like seesawing like to tear tearing at them and it's This is, I, I can't, I mean, even like just talking, I've seen this movie four or five times now, and even just talking about it is just disgusting me. It's it's so awful. It's so terrible. It's so well, you know, it, painful. It's like everything about this scene. But it's so amazing, too. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I mean, like, every because like, it's such an interesting scene, but like everything about it is is disgusting. All the sounds, all of the movements. We haven't touched on one, one of the most famous things about this movie is, is what she says as she's putting the needles in. She does this kind of like, kitty, kitty. I don't yeah, know if it's she, kitty or Kiri. She, I think it's Kiri, maybe. Yeah, like, but she says that over and over again. She's got this high-pitched voice like kind of sounds like a child when she's saying that it, the subtitles said like deeper and deeper and deeper yeah this is a long time ago i heard there's not really a proper translation to those words but it's just like so creepy what she's doing that because like she's taking pleasure out of this oh for sure well and and the whole time that she's doing it she's talking about how she didn't want to be just another another notch on shigeharu's belt yes that's right this is where we learn this is where we learn the motivation she reveals that like and and she's she's both wrong and right too which is what makes this so compelling for me is she's like you set up that audition to have sex with all of those women that you auditioned and it's like that's not technically true but there's enough truth in it where i can easily see why a woman if she finds she's in that situation would be incredibly pissed off maybe not to the point of severing the guy's foot but well yeah and then then there's and then there's even the part where she comes over like when she had snuck into the house earlier and she goes upstairs and it focuses on the picture of shigeharu's deceased wife and then you have to wonder like does she know that the wife is dead or does she assume yeah it's well again because going back to that where she makes him promise to devote his love to only her i think in her mind that means even going back to those date scenes we learn about her we don't learn she doesn't learn anything about him he's probably never mentioned that he had a wife and she's dead so i think i think you know this photo oh he's with another woman but also i think even to her i think it's like even if you had a wife and she's dead, you can't acknowledge her. I am the only woman in your... Well, I think was, that's kind of her There was even a line. So, I mean, there. I want to get back to her essentially sawing his foot off with this wire. Because after that, it comes off with a line, which... By the way, this, mm-hmm. this foot scene, before I continue, this foot scene is terrifying because, again, of all the sounds involved in it. But she looks so happy doing it. Oh, yes. Absolutely. She's smiling. Oh, yeah. She's th- throwing her arms around. Because to anybody listening, it's, you know, she's got this wire wrapped around his foot. So she has to kind of pull like a saw on each hand, essentially, at different intervals, I guess. And But she's just smiling. And she's throwing her arms up and down, almost like an ape or something. But 
it's just awful. It's just terrifying. And blood starts to spurt all over the place, and Shigeharu can't move, and he can't even scream. Uh, it was awful. But you can still see all of that agony in this oh. face. The oh, yeah. shots we do get of him, it's so well performed. I don't think you even need a cutaway to his face because we get everything we need. Oh, but I no, also, I, I'm glad I just... we get a cutaway to his face because I don't want to look at the foot thing constantly. But Ugh. also, I just think it, it does a good job of reminding you of, like, even though we've slipped into this, like, torture depravity territory the cuts to his face it reminds you this is still a human story that at least was being told if not is told yeah yeah it's this scene where she's sawing off shigaharu's foot that is made even more interesting but by what she says afterwards where she goes you promise you'll only love me but you have a son or something yes that's right yeah his son comes home he's he's not home yet but she starts threatening the son basically yeah yeah and she's like how can you she said how can you possibly love me if you have a son you're a liar anyways so she kind of saws off i believe it's the right foot and she just kind of gleefully throws it against like the glass sliding door and it's just like Mm -hmm. uh, just seeing that is like and she's she's about to start on the other foot when shigehiko the son shows up and he was supposed to be out, and she knew that because she heard a voicemail from him because he's supposed to be at his girlfriend's house, but he ended up coming home. I think the girlfriend wasn't feeling well or something. I can't remember, but that doesn't really matter. He's home early. As he arrives home, Asami hides, and he's, like, calling for his dad, and, and it's, like, right as he sees his dad, he's obviously shocked, and Asami approaches him from behind with some kind of a spray, possibly the same drug that... It might just be pepper spray. It might be something more sinister, like the drug that was in Shigehiko's liquor. We don't really know. But as this is happening, we get another flashback or dream sequence. I'm sorry if I'm using those interchangeably, but it's hard to kind of describe. Where Shigeharu wakes up in bed after having sex, again, on that weekend vacation trip thing. But Asami's there with him. And she accepts his proposal to marriage. And you're thinking, like, what is this? Did he propose to her? Was this all a nightmare? What's going on? The weird thing about this scene is that he wakes up in like a cold sweat and he pulls back the covers and sees if his foot is still there. And he checks, he goes, oh, and he, yes. and he kind of like grabs his foot and leans down to it. So then, yeah, so, so you're thinking like, what is this? Is this, has this all been a dream? But then, but then we do cut back to reality and Asami attacks Shigehiko, who ends up running upstairs as he kind of tries to fight back, and he just ends up kicking her down the stairs, and she breaks her neck, and as Shigehiko goes to help his father, and he ends up calling the police, we kind of look back at Asami, who's actually still alive. She's dying, but she is still alive, and she just says a few words, and she repeats what she had said previously on their date, in that, like, I was really looking forward to seeing you again. I'm so glad you called. Yeah, and then past that, it ends with Shigeharu saying something along the lines of no matter what happens in life it'll all be fine or something like that I mean and and that's again a flashback to something he had said on one of their dates Mm -hmm. so that's the end of audition what a movie pretty sure I said that about Frankenstein but what a movie again or maybe I said that earlier about this but this is a hard movie to describe because it's unlike anything really I've seen I've even seen other Takashi Miike movies that are similarly messed up but they're still not quite like this no and again this movie as I said at the beginning of of talking about audition it's this really slow burn it's this really slow burn, and because you come into this, because like from you who said, you know, watch this and don't look into it. I thought, okay, well, something's gonna go on, and then from the guy at the video store going, "Hey, man, yeah, yeah. this is uh, this is certainly a movie," you know. <laughs> 
And then from the cover of Asami holding a, yeah, the cover. Holding a needle. Yeah, I wish we had a different DVD I know, cover. I know, I know. I really do. It's just such a slow burn, and it just leads up to something which I I, I don't want to say that it pays off, because really I don't like what happens, but it's just so terrifying and unnerving and confusing and just gross. And it's, It is confusing. Yeah, yeah. It is genuinely confusing. I, I had forgotten, even though I've seen this film, again, a number of times, I had forgotten how weird that ending is, how many kind of flashbacks and dream sequences we get. I probably saw this movie at least once or twice before I even realized that the scene with the guy in the bag coming out of of that bag, missing the fingers and stuff, before I even realized that doesn't truly happen in reality, at least that we know of. Well, yeah, because I was thinking, after I finished watching the movie, uh, you know, as as I've been doing with all the movies I've been watching twice, after I finished watching it the second time, I thought, what was even the point of that for for, for the plot? Like, was that just for the audience, I guess? To finally that is a great that question. Bag. That is as messed up as that scene is. And part of me thinks that's creepier almost than all of the torture stuff that happens shortly after. Again, that image of him missed the it's the fingers specifically for me is the is the real kicker there as opposed to the feet being the real kicker. Because <laughs> um, he doesn't here. have feet either. <laughs> but you're you're right. I agree. We we have the bag established and we have that established in reality because when we get the first couple glimpses of Asami's home, it's not presented as it's from any character's perspective. So as far as we know, that's just where she lives. And there is something in the bag, and it's probably a person we don't know. But Shigeharu doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know that. So I think... I, I, I do I think the scene is kind of him I think he's imagining it but at the same time I and it could just be a side effect of the drug possibly I mean his well it's let me backtrack a bit I think he's imagining it because I think at this point when he, as he's being drugged and there's probably hallucinations and stuff but I think he's at this point starting to starting to put things together with the guy with the prosthetic feet the bar and and it's obviously those fingers tongues and ears stood out to them because that that was really his first hallucination was he saw those mm-hmm. so i think he's kind of yeah i mean re- really at the end of it i don't i don't know why the director would <laughs> apologize to an audience if they didn't like it because i thought this was a fantastic movie and I, I to be honest i don't know i don't know why that could be a cultural thing ex- well exactly. that, that it, could, it could be a cultural thing. actually no there's there's but, a there's a joe there's a joe bob briggs thing about he's talking about i think it might be in china or something but he in in one of the episodes of the last drive and he's talking about some director that like in certain countries you basically have to apologize if your film doesn't do well or if people don't like your film and he's like we need more of that in america we, we need people to apologize for their <laughs> shitty movies <laughs> Oh, for sure. <laughs> and this is not a shitty movie, uh, by the way. I just no, like it, it's absolutely fantastic. I, I think the only thing that some people might have left a theater or their television. All these festivals it played at. I know one of them. I can't remember which one, but it saw a record number of walkouts during this movie, and it's like I can understand that. But but the, but that record number of walkouts must have only happened in like the last 20 minutes yeah it's that's you know that's I mean? kind of amazing too you made it that far <laughs> you made yeah, it that far it and you're really, giving up on the really movie only the point well, exactly because it was really only the point when shigaharu passes out from the poison or mm-hmm. whatever in in the whiskey that the movie kind of went off the rails yeah that's fair yeah it really is i mean it's a, the movie's about an hour and 55 minutes it's about the last 25 minutes or so is is really where the movie's crazy up until then it is 
part, you know, just it's a rom com a little bit, but I mean, it's it's <laughs> there's definitely comedic elements, but it's I think it's for the most part a pretty serious love story that has a tiny bit of mystery in it because there's the whole you know where did she come from, where did she come from, where did she go, where did she she come from, Cotton Eye Joe, that kind of thing, but. <laughs> how did i know you were going there yeah <laughs> yeah like so there's a little bit of a mystery but the, the movie and then the movie it, 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 this is the perfect like the rug is pulled out from under you movie it's not not that it didn't have hints of where it might go but all the little hints that we saw even the hallucinations of the tongue you know flopping on the ground which is as gruesome as anything we get before that last kind of section of the movie even though there are hints none of the hints could prepare you for what does come well, yeah, I mean, and actually continuing with our talk on hallucinations, I mean, I, I was just thinking as we were talking when... Uh, hallucinations? We never talked about that. You must be hallucinating. <laughs> oh, my God. When Shigeharu goes to meet the, the footless wheelchair man in the ballet uh, studio, but yeah. then we see him getting killed by Asami. Do you think that mm-hmm. happened in reality? She, uh, yeah, part, part of me... Yeah, I, I've actually thought about this. Part of me almost thinks that that happened in the past and that... Here's the thing. This movie's otherwise not a supernatural movie, but there is mm-hmm. something ghostly about his first appearance, especially because Shigeharu breaks into the place and it's boarded exactly, up and it's yeah. completely empty. Part of me thinks is he a ghost but like the rest of the movie's not supernatural so i don't think that really matters we don't really know ultimately if asami ever actually kills him the important stuff that we learn from that we learn two important things we learn a what he did to her and thus in part her motivation and then b we learn that that wire can cut through bones pretty darn well (laughs) flesh and bone please (laughs) flesh and bone yeah and and esophagus and whatever yeah no, it, it, it's just absolutely fantastic, all of it. Yeah, I think I have I have so much to say about this movie. I'm worried this episode will be fairly long, but oh, that's okay. apologies for that. <laughs> so maybe we'll have a record number of walkouts on on this episode. Oh my god, no! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, this movie's great. Uh, this movie is actually based on a novel, and I tried to look into that. And basically all of the kind of the things that people have written about the novel are they're almost exclusively comparing it to the film. Because oh, this really? film is one of those, not like it's a super well-known movie. Again, horror fans know it. Degenerate fans of depravity, <laughs> I'm sure, enjoy it. You know, there's so like, yeah. <laughs> if like, and then it's a significant Japanese film. My friend who got his master's in Japanese studies said, yeah, he, we, we watched this movie <laughs> in, in school and stuff. It's like, oh, that's great. But so this movie is fairly well known for what it is, right? And the like all the points of comparisons were like everyone seemed to say the movie's so much better. <laughs> Apparently the novel like is a lot blunter in sort of it doesn't leave anything I mean, this movie's pretty friggin' blunt when we get to the violence, but it does leave certain things to your imagination, the things that you and I were just talking about. And apparently mm-hmm. the novel doesn't do that. The novel's just like really straightforward. And I saw I think someone even used the word schlock to describe the novel, whereas Takashi Mike <laughs> made made this into a work of art of some kind. It can be I think it's a work of art. I mean <laughs> I do. Oh for sure. I mean I Honestly, from the first, I, I, I mean, this is a horror movie that might, I you know, I don't know how many horror movies you can really classify as a true work of art. You know what I mean? Because I, I think w- when we think of horror movies, we think of like a lot of schlocky kind of movies, or there are some really artful shots in some, 
Oh yeah, there's like movies. like ha- like Halloween. I think is a great example. That is a perfectly shot horror film. Oh, for but sure. But it's still a Absolutely. horror film. Is it is it truly a work of art? Is it really saying something about the human condition? I'm not sure. I'm sure someone could argue it is, but I'm not sure I would a- agree with them. You know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a perfect horror movie in the sense that holy hell, is it disturbing and scary. But it's not a work of art. They set out to make an exploitation movie about a dude with a chainsaw, and that's what they did. They did an incredible job of it. Yeah, and I mean, like, and, and this movie, it, it, it seamlessly blends thriller, stroke, horror, and art. Even from, like, the opening couple scenes, or the opening scene, really. That opening right? scene is, is, is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and then and then and then cutting to the ocean, like this stormy, wavy ocean. Yeah, because they're fishing in, seven in the, years they're later. kind of yeah. the first scene back. It, there's just so many nice shots. There's a shot, too, I've, I've got it almost burned in my brain from just, honestly, the, the pure beauty that it was, was of uh, Asami standing on the porch or balcony or something of this hotel room or, like, villa or whatever that they had rented near the ocean. Mm-hmm just a shot of her with her essentially silhouetted against the cloudy blue sky it was just it was just beautiful i i almost wish i could have printed that out and framed it and put it on a wall i think i would have if i were to frame one image from this movie it would probably be something foot related with the severing in there i I just it's it's we didn't we didn't even comment on this because we talked about like how brutal and disgusting it is the effects the gore effects makeup effects whatever on that foot it looks like a real foot. It is so disgusting. Oh, for I mean, sure. it's so realistic, amazing stuff. But I have a few other things I want to kind of comment on about this movie again positively. But this movie came out in 1999. Ringu, the Japanese movie that was remade as The Ring, came out in 1998. Juwan the Grudge was like 2002, maybe. So this was kind of like, and then we there were a bunch of other movies. This is kind of like right in the middle of that or towards the beginning of it, the kind of the J horror craze and all. All these movies were being remade in the United States. You mentioned The Grudge earlier. Mm-hmm. The Ring and The Grudge are kind of the only American remakes that anyone remembers of all these movies, but they were remaking all of them. Some of them were successful, a lot of them weren't. But this movie has not been remade in America, and I love that, and I'm so happy about that for a few reasons. One, it's there's just not a it's a it's a great movie. I don't want a remake of it because the movie itself is so incredible. Two, I don't think you could make this movie in America. You could not make something this shocking through the Hollywood studio system. I don't believe you could. No, and and you'd also have to completely change the plot or the story. That's also to that's another Western thing too because this ideals or something, you know. Again, I, this movie is more than just the last 25 minutes. But if someone remembers this movie, it will be for the last 25 minutes. So if you're remaking this, you're going to market it, again, kind of like the way the DVD cover is and everything. You're going to just advertise all the stuff that happens in the end. And a remake isn't going to have the devotion to a love story that this movie has. The movie's going to try and throw torture stuff in the opening scene and everything. And it's like, and you can't shock anybody because, again, because this movie's not obscure enough people know about it you can't shock people with the same thing again it's kind of like the old the old boy remake as i understand it which i still haven't actually seen but i think the Uh, problem as i understand that the problem with that movie is they wanted a shocking ending because the original has that shocking ending so they did something similar but changed it a bit and it's like what 
<laughs> I just think the best part about it being in Japanese and remaining as a Japanese movie, I guess for me it's more of like a, it's a time capsule thing, to be honest. I mean, this has really nothing to do with horror or movies, but it's more of like a time capsule. And I really like viewing a culture from that, I guess, from this uh-huh. way or from uh-huh. that or, and in that time period. But even too, like going back to what we were saying about not being able to remake the movie in America at the time. I mean, this was 99, back when cell phones were like kind of big. Oh yeah, we see a few like, cell phones in big, this movie, I guess, right? America. The main character has a cell phone. They're all over the yeah. place and they're tiny. Yeah, and they're always talking about, they're like, hey dad, if I'm going to be late, I'm going to call you on the cell phone or hey, have a good day at work, boss. I'll, mm-hmm. you know, I'll talk right. to you on the cell phone. And even at one point, did you notice when they're when uh, Shigaharu's driving to the uh, audition, he's driving in a Nissan and the only reason I know that is because he has a touch screen oh. in his Nissan and it says Nissan on it and he touches it and I thought, holy touch shit. Touch screens in cars like, had to have been pretty new back then, yeah. Well, yeah, and I was like, you know, holy shit, this has got to be like a decade before touch screens made their ways into the mainstream well, made their way to yeah yeah to, to, to anybody over here anyways yeah i guess i hadn't thought of that i thought in, in, in when you when you said time capsule i thought you were going to talk about how much indoor smoking there is in this movie oh because God. you do not see that anymore <laughs> i loved that it sounds like our conversation on audition has more or less gone off the rails so unless you have some major negatives to say none at all not okay. at all then i think we should kind of move on to well we bo- we liked both these movies how do they work as a double feature? You know, I was thinking about that question as I was watching Frankenstein, and I thought the only similarity, really, between the two, in my opinion, is honestly, this might come as a surprise, is honestly the way it was shot. You have uh, a lot of static camera motion. Like, you, like you have a lot of sta- static camera shots okay. of, like, far away of the whole room, of following a character going somewhere. I mean, it, it, there really is no okay. similarity, but that's the closest <laughs> thing I could come up with. But as a double feature, I think tonally they're just really different... They are very you, different, yes. You have, I mean, like, and it, it, not in the way that, like, Killer Workout and uh, uh, Hush were, because you're right, like, last episode you talked about... They're at least both good this play. time. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. If nothing yeah. else. And I mean, I just don't know which one you would put first, you know, which one should come second. If I have given a one. lot of thought to that, if you don't mind me stepping in. Yeah, go on, go on. Here's the thing. A big negative on as far as the second feature goes to audition because of the subtitles i have nothing against subtitles but again if this is your second movie of the night it's late at night you're tired subtitles might not be the best thing and and also again if we think of this in in a drive-in setting i've actually i've never seen a film with subtitles at a drive-in it might be really hard to read those i don't know it might be. Oh wait, you're talking. Wait, you're saying Hobbs and Shaw? You know, didn't have subtitles. You saw Hobbs and Shaw at the drive-in, not me. The subtitles of that movie would probably be like the old Batman TV card. Pow, zap. <laughs> I know, I know. My girlfriend took me to it. I was like, I don't want to see it. <laughs> Damn. But here's the thing. Also, again, what we talked about earlier, you know, last episode with the the first movie in this double feature is going to be your more mainstream, your more kind of normal, traditional movie. Audition does not fit that at all. It fits. <laughs> it's your second movie. It has to be because of how depraved and messed up it is. Yeah, I mean, in a good way. And then I'm also reminded, too, of what we said about Hush is like Hush as the first movie. That's an emotional roller coaster. I kind of want to follow that up with some levity. Auditions the same way. If that's your first movie, you've got to follow it up with 
I don't I don't know what you follow audition up with. It is so unique and so terrifying and so disturbing. I you, you it it kind of I think if it's your first movie, your second movie's ruined no matter what it is because you because you can't take your mind off of what you just saw. Well, exactly. I mean, to follow up audition, you have to turn your television off. You know what I mean? And sit down and think, I think about so. it for a bit. I think so. I'm not someone who suffers from nightmares generally, so I, 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 I'll probably sleep okay, but I'll <laughs> yeah. continue to think about that movie because it, it is terrifying. You wouldn't want to put Frankenstein after it because that almost cheapens Frankenstein. You yeah, know what I, mean? I think Frankenstein's got to come first. I think it does. We also have, I mean, I don't know if this is going to factor into any calculations we're making or guesstimations, but I mean, I think the way most people would view Frankenstein today is like this antiquated horror movie, really. Yeah, old or, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's like this weird thing that's out of touch with modern day audiences, but everybody knows about it because it's so famous. That both, like, I understand that it also bothers me. There are a lot of, like, horror fans that seem to just not really, I'm not saying this is even a high percentage of horror fans, but there are a lot of people that, like, basically don't acknowledge anything that came out before like halloween yeah and it's like that's frustrating to me because there's so many great ones from before that that might not be scary today but i don't find halloween scary and i still like talk to my mother i I don't think a horror movie has (laughs) (laughs) exactly i don't think a horror movie has to be scary to be good i think it needs to tell its story well and i think we have two movies here that tell their story extremely well frankenstein in a much more conventional and straightforward and what i said earlier an economic way audition it's a bit strange but it's still it's unique storytelling certainly yeah and you know and, and the other thing as you would brought up earlier about subtitles and you know again i have nothing against subtitles but you know if if you're gonna be watching i would not want to see this film dubbed no. i don't know if there is a dubbed version i i think that d- dubbing there's like an unintentional comedy to it exactly. always and this movie i want to take seriously i totally agree with you and actually i was going to bring up dubbing in a minute Another thing, too, is you're right. People don't want to have to read, I guess, later at night. And But also, yeah. both movies have stories that you kind of need to pay attention to. Absolutely. You know, I mean, even though Frankenstein has been around for near 100 years, the, the movie, uh-huh. you still want to be able to pay attention to actually find out what's going on. I mean, especially when the fucking old fart gets on the screen, you know? And you got to be like, what the hell is he doing here? Oh, I know how he's related to the story. And then audition, you know, you really, really, truly have to pay attention to almost every word that comes out of every character's mouth. Yeah, there are so many kind of lines even that, that we didn't even really talk about, but that are kind of, you'd almost say like thematic or something. But there's a line earlier where when Shige, Shige Haru meets Shige Hiko's girlfriend and, and he says something about like, I can't remember what he says specifically about her but then he's like oh yeah women are never what they seem and stuff and yeah like, at first yeah. it kind of seems like a throwaway line but oh my god that's what the entire movie's about <laughs> or partially what that entire movie's about because the movie's also about and i think these two things are equally important the movie's about people that take advantage of women i mean ultimately this is a woman's revenge movie basically it's not structured like a typical revenge movie but no that's that's the story that's one of the stories you know, being and told, again it's sure. funny that you brought that up because again on my version of uh, of audition that i watched at the beginning when the director was being interviewed he briefly said at the end of this i think it was him or it might have been asami or the the woman who plays asami one of them said you should fear asami but you should fear being shigeharu 
You should fear Asami, but you should fear being Shigeharu. And and they're totally right. That's what you come away from audition with, other than disgust. And, and but yeah, dread I, you know. and a desire to never, ever date anyone <laughs> for the rest of your life, right? That's exactly it. That's no, uh, exactly it. Exactly, but anyways, yeah. uh, so we, we are in agreement. Uh, Both movies are fantastic. If you had to pick one, which would it be? Oh, man. That's a really tough question, Patrick. You know, I love Frankenstein. I love it with all my heart and literally all my soul forever and ever, no matter what. I love it to death, but I'm going to have to pick Audition. Just okay. because, I mean, if, if that cover for Audition didn't exist, uh-huh. I could have gone into Audition knowing absolutely nothing about it and been absolutely shocked and yeah. stunned by the ending. Meanwhile, Frankenstein is a story that's been around for a couple hundred years and a movie that's been around for nearly a hundred years and everybody knows how it ends, you know? Sure. Yeah, that's fair. So I said earlier, I wasn't sure how I could pick between the two, and really I'm still not, especially because the movies are so different, but I have consulted, you probably don't know this, I have kept a list of my 500 favorite movies of all time. It's by no means, you know, accurate down to the number, like I can't look at it and reasonably articulate why 283 is higher than 284, but these movies are literally within five films of each other. Wow. But Frankenstein is higher. So I guess I prefer Frankenstein, even though I really don't know if I can stick to that. I mean, the movies are both, you know, both see, fantastic. And I was going to say that you probably picked Frankenstein on that list. It's it's a, it's a toss-up. They're both just about perfect in their own very, 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 very different yeah, ways. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So I think this kind of wraps things up. But again, Jim, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you, too. Eat lots of candy, you know. And before we go, we should remind you, you the listeners, what we have up for next time, because Revenge of the Drive-In will return, this time with Dr. No and Shocker. Shocker, 1989 from Wes Craven, Dr. No, the first official James Bond film. Jim, I'm sure you're looking forward to that. Oh my god, I can't wait. All right, I'm looking forward to it too, and then I'll probably be reminded of uh, this movie's a lot drier than I remember, but anyways, <laughs> I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Shocker, though, so I'm looking forward to that. Be sure to join us next time. We look forward to having you again, and until then... Happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah, happy Halloween, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>